Years ago, um, my friend Miguel and I uh, in Spain, we rode our bikes across the northern part of Spain. It was a two-week trip. It was a religious pilgrimage route that we followed. And when we got to the midway point, about day seven in the evening, Miguel uh, said to me, and I remember where we were, we were outside and, and we had just finished uh, dinner and, and he said, I can't go on. He says, you know, you go on, I'm returning to Madrid. We see, we had had some grueling days before then, uh, not just riding on our bikes up mountains, but into the wind and in the rain with our bicycles uh, loaded down with our gear. And our destination, you know, Santiago de Compostela, which is in the northwest part of Spain, seems so elusive. And he says, I'm done. I remember talking to him and saying to him, Miguel, don't give up. Sure, we've had hard days, and we may have hard days yet in the future, but let's endure, let's persevere together to the very end. I don't want to go without you. And I think that that's something of what the author of Hebrews is saying um, to these Jewish Christians. You see, these Jewish Christians had come to faith in Christ, but they had encountered opposition and some severe persecution by non-Christian Jews. So they were considering quitting. They were considering abandoning faith in Christ alone and were thinking about drifting back to Judaism, to its rituals and ceremonies. So in response, the author says, let me show you how much better Jesus is. And that's what he does in this epistle. Shows us that how Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. So as if to say, don't quit Christ. Don't turn your back on him. But rather patiently endure. So in chapter 10, verses 35 and 36, he writes, Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. See, he, the author has confidence that they're going to persevere. But nonetheless, he exhorts them. He gives them a warning. Don't shrink back, but have faith. But what would this kind of faith look like? And this is how, in chapter 11, how he responds. What he does in chapter 11, he shows us through all these different persons that he mentions, how faith is worked out, how faith is displayed in these Old Testament believers in really difficult times. I think we need that encouragement and word of exhortation as well. See, some of us are in a crisis of faith right now. You know, it could be because of some intellectual challenges to your faith. It could be because of the emotional, uh, physical, uh, relational problems that you're encountering. Maybe it's a result of the COVID-19 and all the questions and issues that this is raising for you. And you're wondering, God, where are you in all this? Or maybe you're looking at the racial divide in our country and you look at see and see how some Christians are responding and you go, if that's Christianity, I don't want anything to do with it. And so you shrink back, you drift away. Why? Because you've lost hope. See, if this is where you are this morning, I pray that the Lord would graciously give you the gift of faith, of being able to trust this God who has made unbreakable promises of better things to come in Christ Jesus. Yes, there are better things to come. And we need to see that even in this difficult time. And so, in this introduction, I want us to consider three things this morning. The certitude that accompanies genuine faith. The people of the community of faith from whom we learn. And the basis of our certitude, which is the Word of God. 
So first of all, the certitude that accompanies genuine faith. You see that in verse 1. In verse 1, the author uh, does not give us an exhaustive, detailed, theological definition of faith. That's not what's happening there in verse 1. There are many dimensions of faith that he doesn't address. But what he's doing is he's thinking about the situation of these Hebrew Christians. And he wants to stress how faith works in this kind of difficult environment. And he shows us, and he shows them and us, characteristics of faith that should be reflected in their lives and also in our lives. So he says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So I take those two things, uh, assurance and conviction, summarize it as certitude. But those two words are really interesting, dear friends. They have a range of meaning, and you can see the range of meaning if you were to read this, this verse in various translations. See, the range of meaning in these two words include both subjective and objective elements. And by subjective, I mean the, uh, really the confidence uh, within us, within our soul. Okay? We are the subject. For example, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, that same word that is translated here as assurance, it's translated in Hebrews 3.14 as confidence. See? But, but objectively, we also see, uh, and objectively what I mean by that is outside of us, we see that same word translated in Hebrews 1.3 as nature or substance. And some of you may have remembered, you know, if you memorize uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, you know, that faith is the substance of things hoped for. And see, it, 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 it embraces that range of meaning. See, and it's translated as substance. And maybe the idea behind that is that as faith grabs hold of what is hoped for, it does so as something that, that is real and of substance, substantial. But here's something that's really interesting as well. That same word is used for title deeds, for certificates of ownership of property or land. See, these are subjective ideas. So if we combine those two elements, subjective and objective, we can say it like this, like this that faith is like that title deed that gives you the assurance that the things that you hope for, things that are yet future, things not yet realized, but which God has promised, is that title deed that gives you that assurance that those things are yours. They're real. That's what faith looks like. Now, let's look at the next phrase. That faith is the conviction of things not seen. I think that's parallel to the first phrase and confirms it and provides something of what we call a visual certitude. And now, this is really important for the Hebrew Christians. Remember, they were really visually driven. Uh, before the conversion to Christ, what, remember, their religious life was dominated by things they could see. They could see the temple, right? And they could go into the temple. They could see the priest take that, that lamb that, and, and that was slaughtered. They could see the blood that was shed, right, to cover their sin. And, and they, could, they could see all that. They could see all these rituals and sacrifices, and yet, deep-seated faith is more than that. It's more than just those things that you can see. It's about things we can't see with our eyes. Let me ask you, can you see the forgiveness of sins that you have in Christ Jesus? Can you see forgiveness? No, you can't see it with your eyes. But you are utterly convinced of the reality of that, 
That forgiveness that you have in Christ Jesus, you are so assured and convinced of that as if you could see them with your eyes. See, faith is the conviction of things not seen. Look, later on, the author is going to give us an example of Noah. I, I wonder, you know, when God went to Noah, right, we read about this in Genesis, uh, and God says, Noah, I want you to build an ark because I'm going to destroy the world through a flood. I wonder how Noah responded. If you look up in the sky, he says, there is not a cloud up in the sky. There's no rain falling down. And he looks at the dirt and it's very arid. You know, and he doesn't see a flood coming. He doesn't see that judgment coming. And yet, he is so convinced, so assured that he accepts the reality of what God said and he begins to build an ark. And so here he is for a couple of years building an ark. And people are laughing at him. And yet he doesn't see that flood. You see, but why did he do it? Because he's basing it not on what he sees, but on the word of God that would surely come to pass. This is the emphasis. And as I urge you to read Hebrews 11 several times, because you'll see this emphasis in the heroes of faith. The future promises of God, that is our hope. And that, our hope, is not yet visible. It's not something that we can see in the present. Yet, it is more real. This is what he wants to tell us. It is more real, more reliable than what we can see with our eyes. You see, brothers and sisters, dear friends, living by faith is to live our lives not on the basis of what we can see. And Paul brings that out, doesn't he? We walk by faith and not by sight. All right? But rather, we live on the basis of the Word of God. And this is what leads us to have assurance. It leads us to rest. It leads us to endure when things are really difficult. Because we look at the Word of God and we rest on that when we don't see the things we want to see. I want you to imagine with me. You know, take a five-year-old boy like Jonah Hicks. Well, he's not quite five. He'll be five in a couple of weeks, right? And imagine Danny and Roxanne Hicks, and he'll tell Jonah, he says, Jonah, go, go to bed, you know, and, and so he go, trots off to his bedroom, and he, uh, he supposedly is in bed. About an hour later, Danny goes and to check on Jonah to see if he's asleep. And, and he sees that Jonah's sitting up on his bed, and he looks really worried. He's got this, you know, anxious look on his face, and he says, Jonah, what's wrong? And he says, oh, Daddy. Daddy, all my friends have received bicycles for their birthdays. I'm afraid I'm not going to get one. And so, you know, Danny says to him, Jonah, don't worry. I will get you a bicycle for your birthday this year. Now go to sleep. Danny closes the door. He walks away. 15, 20 minutes later, he comes back, and Jonah is asleep. Why? Why is he asleep? Why? Because he has received from his father a promise. And though he does not yet physically see that bike or possess that bike, his promise, that promise from his father is as good as having that bike. No pressure, Danny, but this is on you now, okay? So this is how we experience the reality of faith. We hold on to the promises of God that we can't yet see realized or not yet realized. But though we don't see them, they're as good as being accomplished and fulfilled. And this is what allows our souls to rest. Because see, faith has this element of resting in our God because we trust Him. Do you need rest for your souls this morning? 
discouragement is unsettling your soul and wreaking havoc with your faith, could you not rest on the promise of God found in Psalm 55:22? It says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. You lay hold of that promise. He will sustain you. He will uphold you. Or if anxiety and worry is unsettling your soul and wreaking havoc on your faith, think of Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You lean on that promise. God, you said, Father, you said that you are with me, that your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I need your comfort, oh people of God. This is what it looks like to walk by faith. And so, there's a certitude that accompanies genuine faith. But secondly, the author wants us to see, and this is what he's going to flesh out in the rest of chapter 11, there's a people in the community of faith from whom we are to learn. We see that in verse 2. It's almost as if the writer is anticipating his reader to say, hey, that kind of faith, that kind of believes to be real, that which you can't see, that seems really hard. That, I would say that's impossible. I, I don't think I can do that. And in response to that, he writes, For by it, that faith, the people of old received their commendation. They were approved by God. Look, when he says this, he's saying several things. And one of the things he's saying is this, you are not the only ones to face opposition as you walk with God. Look, and he's going to give us a whole list of all these ancients, right? These people of old who experienced hardship, yet they also endured because they had this faith in God. He's saying, look, look at them. So can you. He's also saying to them, you are part of a larger family. You are part, and you are united to a community, a group of saints. And you are not to live life disconnected from them. Now, you, there's this communion of saints that theologians talk about. See, why should we not think uh, that we're disconnected from them? Why? Because they have much to teach us. And who are these people that have much to teach us about faith? Look at the list. They're not Americans. They're not Mexicans. They're not Greeks. They're not Asians. No. No. What do we have? They're not people that we have a common nationality with. No, for the most part, they're Jews. No, Jews who were trusting in God and trusting in the Christ to come. Right? But also included in this are Gentiles. And specifically, one Gentile, Canaanite woman, Rahab, a former prostitute. You see... We can learn about how faith works from saints of another era, from saints of another generation, from saints of another culture, from saints of the other sex, from saints of another race and ethnicity. We have something to learn from all the people of God, men and women who committed horrible sins and yet had faith in God. Now, in the upcoming weeks as we look at Chapter 11, the rest of chapter 11, I want you to press your ear to listen to the faith story, not just of Abraham or of Moses. We're used to that, but I want you to listen and try to draw lessons from the faith story of the likes of Samson. 
you read Samson, you go, oh man, you, you, you think, there are a lot of things here I shouldn't do. And we could go and mention a lot of those things. But he's commended for his faith in God. I think if we extend this principle, we can apply it, especially thinking of what's going on in our society right now. We can apply this to learning from our black brothers and sisters in Christ who have suffered much and yet have endured faithfully in Christ. See, we can apply this, my dear friends, especially those of us who are younger in the faith. We can go to our mothers and fathers, those who are older in the faith, and say to them, will you teach me? Will you tell me stories of how you endured hardship? Because I'm going through some hard times, and I need you to teach me. Because, see, quite frankly, you can never say, I don't think genuinely say, I'm a man or a woman of faith, a boy or girl of faith, and not want to be taught by other people. There has to be a humble teachability if we are to be people of faith and to walk with faith with our God. I remember years ago uh, with this retired pastor. He's moving from Maryland to Florida and Kim and I helped them move and I sat in the truck, the moving truck with him all those hours and I just plied him with question after question because I wanted to learn from this godly man. Oh, people of God, could we not do that? Do you have someone? Are there not people in this congregation and those around you for whom you can learn? I think there are. See, the author wants us to learn about how faith works, but he also wants to make sure that we know, brings us, this brings us to the third point, that the basis of our certitude is the Word of God. And I've already alluded to that. But verse 3 drives home the point. The author says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. How do we know how the universe was created? CNN wasn't there. Fox News wasn't there. National Geographic wasn't there. None of us were there to witness the origins of creation. Right? We, it requires faith. But, he says... By faith we understand. We can say it this way. By faith we think. By faith we use our mind. By faith we reason. We think about what God has spoken. What God has revealed. This is the basis of our certitude as we walk with God. When God created, my dear friends, He did not have a world starter kit. He did not go to Home Depot or Lowe's to gather the material, you know, to create the world. No, not at all. How did he create? He simply spoke. That word is rhema. He uttered, he uttered, and it all came into existence. He spoke, and Alpha Centauri, which is 25 trillion miles away, came into existence. He spoke, and Betelgeuse, which is 27 million times larger than our sun, came into existence. He spoke, and the earth, and the sun, and the moon came to be. Let there be light, and there was light. He spoke it. He willed it into existence. And His word spoken is an expression of His will that is always accomplished. It's never frustrated. God always accomplishes His will. Amen. So why does this matter to the issue of faith at hand? I want you to hear this. 
This is the point I want to drive home. If the visible creation was brought forth by the invisible spoken word of God, if God by his word and was uttered brought the cosmos into being by no thing, then why, dear friends, do we doubt the utter divine word which has made promises to you and to me? Do you see what the author is doing? He's telling us about the creation of the universe by the word of God so that we come to trust his word, his word that has spoken promises to you and to me. And that's where we rest our assurance and conviction. It's not unreasonable. That's not, you know, uh, nonsensical. That's very intelligent. I think of what one pastor pointed out. He said this, he says, the Hebrew Christians understood that God had already kept the most difficult promise ever made. And if he kept that most difficult of all promises, then not one of his other promises would fail to be realized. Now what was the most difficult promise God ever made? What was the most difficult promise God ever made? And you remember that after Adam and Eve sinned, and brought curse on the world and humanity. God promised that He would restore the world and redeem a people by making them new creations. And He would do so through the Word become flesh. The Word become flesh. And He promised that He would offer up that Word become flesh, His only begotten Son, Jesus, to suffer and to die in our place. He promised He would offer up His Son, whom we're told in Hebrews chapter 1, that through Him the world was made, and by the power of His Word the universe is is sustained. See, God made this wonderfully difficult promise that He would take and sacrifice His only Son and lift Him up on a cross, on the tree of Calvary, so that His Son would be punished as He would bear our sins, your sins, my sin, on that tree. That He would be cursed. He would be forsaken. He would die. He would be punished in our place so that we would have everlasting life. That's the promise He fulfilled. He promised He would do that, and He did it. He did it. And if He kept that promise... Can we not trust Him to keep every other promise He has made and uttered by His Word? Faith trusts in the Word of God. The spoken Word, the inscripturated Word, and the incarnated Word, Jesus, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen, as Apostle Paul tells us in Corinthians. See, this is what keeps us going, keeps us trusting God. This is what keeps you and me from drifting away, from shrinking back. This is what keeps us running in this race with endurance. I ask you, if you don't stand on the Word of God, and on the promises of God, if you are not standing on Jesus, on His work and His words, what are you standing on? What are you basing your life on? What's your foundation? If it's only what you see, if it's only what you see, I can understand perfectly why you want to quit. I can understand perfectly why you would despair. Oh yes, yes, we see some good things in this world every now and then, but right now what fills our vision are a lot of bad things. 
a lot of terrible things. What we see now is death and sin and misery and hunger and loneliness. People struggling economically because of COVID-19, you know, and because of this pandemic. We see fighting and bloodshed and hatred and anger because of racism and injustice. That's what we see. Is that what you see? Is that all you see? If that's all you see, of course you give up. But what if, people of God, what if, dear friends, what if God would give you the gift of the eyes of faith, the gift of faith, by which you could see not simply the visible, the reality, the good and the bad around us, but also with the eyes of faith, see the invisible promises uttered by the mouth of God. And somehow, with the hand of faith, grasp those promises that are somewhere out there. You don't quite see them, but somehow, by faith, you can grasp them, and you can sense it, and you have the assurance and the conviction that it's real. Would that not fill your heart and life with hope, even in the midst of all these troubles that we are facing? I think so. This is where he's driving us. The author's driving us. This week, I want you to ponder and to meditate and to chew on the promises of God. Meditate on the coming soon promises of God. Coming soon is Jesus' return. I don't know when. I'm not here to predict that. But Jesus said, He promised that He's going to come soon and He's going to bring a just judgment and all this mess, all the injustice will be made right. Coming soon, God, heaven will descend to earth and the dwelling place of God will be with us. Coming soon, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth in which God will see Him face to face and will finally be restored in our joy, in our communion fully with Him. Coming soon, there'll be no more evil or sin in us or in people around us or in this world to contend with. Coming soon, an end to disease and pain and suffering. Coming soon, an end to grief and mourning and fear and anxiety. Coming soon, the melting away of confusion and doubt. Coming soon, no more poverty. Coming soon, no more anger or bigotry. Coming soon, a perfectly gathered worshiping community of all tribes, languages, and nations and ethnicities around Jesus the Christ, the Word of God, who Hebrews says is the founder and finisher of our faith. That's what's coming soon. Amen. Can you hold on to that? I don't know how you endure. I don't know how you wouldn't give up unless you hold on to the author, founder, perfecter of your faith, Jesus, the Word incarnate. What if all that were more real than what we see? Oh, I know what would happen. I know what would happen. We'd have the assurance of things hoped for. We'd have the conviction of things not seen. We would walk by faith. Let's pray.